Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about closure spec with Daniel Higginbottom, the primary author of the Spec Monster Library. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you on board. So we're here to talk about Spec Monster primarily. And so first question is that name, Spec Monster with a A-H at the end. What does that mean? Right, yes. So, okay, so kind of the genesis of this name, um, when I was trying to write the library to do what SpecMonster does, I initially was using another library that I'd written called GrowMonster. And the idea with GrowMonster is like, those are those toys or like sponges or something that you... Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, you get them wet and then they, they grow into something larger. So the idea was to be able to compactly describe some data that would then get be expand that would then uh, get expanded and so that you could could work with it. So with spec monster we want to use spec to generate data because it's it's great for that and also I think it had come out pretty recently at the time but it seemed to fit our needs so we were thinking spec monster but uh, at the time I was working with Reify Health whose uh, offices are in Boston and uh, Gabe Corner when I was telling him about this, he was like, well, we are in Boston, so I think it's pronounced Spec Monster using the Boston <laughs> accent. Right, I see. Yeah. And so that's to help you pronounce it properly, the A-H at the end. Yes, exactly. We even had a conversation about this on GitHub. I was like, no one's going to think to do that. Um, but it was, it was Gabe's response was like, well, it makes me laugh. And I was like, oh, that's a good enough reason for me. Let's keep it. <laughs> so <laughs> Nice. Yeah. yeah. So so this library was kind of developed under the, the banner of Rayify Health. So what is what does Rayify Health do? How do they use Clojure? Yes. So Rayify Health, I was with them for two years, um, had a great stint there. And what, what we were doing there uh, was providing uh, web-based applications for institutions that do clinical trials. So Basically, like clinical trials, staying organized, uh, managing teams across the U.S. or even different countries, sharing data with various organizations. Like it was kind of a mess. And so like the Reify is like their goal is to improve the clinical trial space. Uh, I thought it was a pretty cool idea. They want to ultimately to reduce the time it takes to perform clinical trials, like saving money and getting therapies that can help people out there faster. Right. And so how does Clojure come into that? Right. So yes, that was part two of that question. So Clojure, uh, we were using Clojure for the front end and the back end for these web-based applications. I can go into more detail there. Yeah. So is it it all Clojure all the time? Is the other stuff in there as well? Almost all Clojure, almost all of the time. Uh, there was, I think there's like some, um, a, a legacy application that used Angular. Um, no one ever wants to have to <laughs> update that. Um, yeah. so as, as, as far as I know, like, I don't know, maybe they've uh, moved off, to, uh, like updated that to use closure script as well. Sure. Nice. And so you've got an infomercial for spec monster in the readme. So kind of what's the sales pitch for SpecMonster? Why why should people be interested in it? Yeah, so I'll run this by you. And actually, this is something that I've been struggling with because the way I've been trying to sell people, I feel like doesn't really capture everything that SpecMonster can do, but I'm trying to at least 
say one thing, like one specific thing that it can do. Otherwise, I think I would just be saying gobbledygook. But anyway, I'll run this by you. And then maybe by the end of this, we'll, we'll have something better. Or maybe not. Whatever. It's fine. Either way. So I think that what Spec Monster does is it takes a unique approach to generating all of the records. And I would say um, inserting into a database, if you need to, all of the records that you need to run a unit test. So for example, if you are writing a forum, which I've kind of been in my spare time rewriting this forum site, you might have a like record. And that like refers to a comment and a comment refers to a topic and the topic has an owner. So you need to have uh, like this comment, top, topic and owner all existing in your database to satisfy database constraints, like your foreign key relations and constraints um, in order for that like to exist. Now, if you were to write all that out um, with like, in a test, you'd have to write all these let bindings, you know, create this user, pass the user ID to the topic, uh, pass the topic ID to the comment. Oh, also the comment also has an author. So that needs to, you need to, you know, generate another user there or use the same one. And then also finally pass this comment ID to the like so that you can insert your like in a database. And mm. so what SpecMonster, uh, the original use case for it was to be able to do all of that in one line of code instead of, you know, five lines of code, or if you have a very like nested hierarchy of data, you know, 10, 20 lines of code or whatever it is, but to be able to do this so that you can focus just on the data that you care about for that specific test. However, right. the way that it's designed, it allows for more use cases than that. And maybe I can, you know, we can talk about those as well during the podcast. Sure. Yeah. So the, the business problems that you were trying to address primarily with SpecMonster, were sort of around testing and fixtures. Would that be accurate? That is a great elevator pitch. <laughs> I, uh, man, I, had a, I feel like I had a very long-winded explanation. But yes, testing and fixtures. Sums it up. Nice. Sure. So at a high level, how does SpecMonster work? What's it doing to let you generate you know, this complex domain model in a single line of code? Yeah, so basically the, the way that SpecMonster is designed is it employs a, a few different concepts. Um, and I'll, I'll try to talk about those and then how they work together to accomplish this uh, fixture generation, right? So what SpecMonster does is, well, what you do when you're using SpecMonster is you are trying to generate what's called an EntDB. And then you are visiting the entity, the entities in this NTB. And when you visit these entities, you're performing uh, functions or applying functions to them, right? So the NTB will be something like in the form example, you have a like, which references, uh, I said comment earlier, but I think probably post is more accurate. Um, a like, which references a post, which references a uh, topic, which references a user, right? So the EntDB will capture this by storing those entities and their relationships as a graph. Um, it uses Loom under the hood, right? So you have these four entities, and when you visit them, uh, you're applying functions to them. So what you can do is you can have a spec generation visiting function. So you can say for each of these entities, like when I apply this spec gen function to it, just use spec to generate the data 
But then also do things like get the IDs to line up so that the likes post ID actually references or is the posts ID, right? So that could be like one visiting function generating the data. And then you could have a second visiting function, which would be to insert the data into a database. So you might be wondering, okay, so how do you actually generate this MDB? The concepts involved there, like there are two main concepts. There is a schema, and then there uh, is a query. So the schema is a map that defines the entity types and their relationships amongst each other, right? So like that's where you would say a like, for example, references a post via the post ID, right? Um, you could say, for example, a post maybe references a user via two different attributes. You could say the created by ID for the user and the uh, deleted by ID, like if you have a moderator or something like that, right? So the NTB would capture that, that relationship when the entities are created, but those relationships, that relationship template is captured within the schema. The schema, actually, you can define more things in the schema that uh, kind of define the ways that your the entity types relate to each other, and I can get into that maybe later. Um, but anyway, so just to recap, there is a schema that defines entity types and their relationships. And in order to actually generate specific entities, you use a query, which I think, you know, it's kind of... The term query is maybe the opposite. It's used in a, in, a, in a kind of inverted sense of like, usually you think, oh, a query is what you use to retrieve data from a database. But in this case, mm-hmm. query means basically like generate the database, generate the ent DB such that the data that I'm specifying can exist and can be consistent. So if you're saying, if you're query, in your query, you're saying, I want one like along with a schema that tells spec monster to generate an MTB such that the entire hierarchy of entities is created. Um, And it tries to do that in as compact a fashion as possible. So like, let's say, for example, your your topic and your post and your like all have references to a user. It will only generate one user and have all of those different entities reference that same user entity unless you specify otherwise. So... uh, does that kind of give you a good overview? Yeah, yeah. And one one thing I I found when I was reading through the, the documentation was that the sort of separation between the entity DB is only about the the entity relations, and then the the spec sort of attributes get laid on on top in a later phase. Is that yeah? Have I understood that correctly? Yep, that's completely correct. Yeah, that, that part seemed really, really interesting to me because it kind of let you strip down to the essence of what is the the entities and the relations in this graph and then kind of as a separate thing, add them all on later because often those two steps get combined together. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, in version one, that's how we did it. And it was kind of a headache because like what we found, for example, was you wanted to be able to say like, oh, I might generate some data, but I insert it in a separate step. But what do I do if I want to compare what was generated from what was inserted? The way that we were representing this at the time was just to use a, a map. And we would kind of update in place, you know, the map that would correspond to any particular entity. So you'd kind of lose this data. Like that, The this idea of separating the, just like the NTB and like those relationships 
from, you know, what gets generated by spec or get what gets returned from inserting the data. That was actually the way that that's organized was inspired a, a little bit by uh, like Datomic and Onyx in that both of those projects, I feel like have this idea of, you know, don't throw data away, you know? So by, by, by moving to the graph rep- representation, it allowed us to not throw data away. Nice. And just to, just to reemphasize, when I was looking at this, it, it all looked very graphy and datary and closury. And I thought, well, this, this is going to be a great fit for, for Datomic. But it's not just for Datomic, is it? You can sort of use kind of a, you know, a Postgres or other data stores to persist these graphs. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, in one of my personal projects, I'm using Datomic and it works fine for that. And at, at Reify, we were using Postgres. And um, so like that was, you know, the original use case and obviously it, it worked there. Um, but so like the idea by making this visiting function a, a concept that's like, you know, this separate concept that's kind of, I think of it as kind of analogous to, to mapping. And that like when you're mapping a sequence, you have some function that's applied to each element of the sequence with the visiting function. It's similar. You're applying a function to each element in this NDB, but there's just like a couple more ideas there, which is that the entities are by default topologically sorted if you can do that. And, and there's also like some more ideas there with like how do you, what happens with like the return value of the visiting function. But yeah, so anyway, this is like, I feel like I'm being long-winded again, but this is to answer your question of can you use this with Datomic or, or any data store? Uh, yes, because you can write any visiting function that you want to that's appropriate for your data store. Um, to insert the entity into that data store. And in fact, one of the goals that I had um, when I was writing this with Reify, like when I was still at Reify and didn't quite get there, was at Reify, what we were actually doing was um, for front-end development, we want we had front-end development decoupled from the back-end such that like anytime a remote request would be performed, um, if, you, if you weren't specifying, like, I actually want to talk to a remote server, that we would use spec to just generate some data uh, that would then be persistent across that session. And then that would like, allow designers, for example, to be able to just fire up the front end and be able to click through and see how things are working. Right. So that was, oh, nice. yeah, yeah. It was super, super interesting. I think Karen Meyer may have talked about that or written about that at some point because uh, she was uh, t- consulting with Reify as well a couple of years ago. But yeah, but so like that's, you know, the data is getting stored in an atom and that's part of, that was one of the design goals for this rewrite was to be able to say like, oh, you know, let's just use SpecMonster actually to generate this data and uh, put it, you know, into this atom store. Sure. So moving over to the, the spec side of things, how have you found developing a library that uses spec? Yes. Yeah, so I think that that's, there are maybe a couple different facets uh to, you know, how I could answer that, that question. So um, one was that like SpecMonster, part of the need that we were trying to address was to be able to generate data where the um, the relationships or the foreign key attributes were consistent, right? So like with spec, it will just generate any random data, right? Mm. But like that's, you can't have that and, you know, <laughs> insert it directly into a database and like it won't work, right? So, which is like, I don't think that's a, a criticism of, of, of spec, you know, like that's, 
that's not what it's designed for. But that, that's what one of the needs of Spec Monster was meant to address. So I think another aspect of using Spec, so actually, uh, so I guess I'll mention two things. One is that like we provide a visiting function to use Spec to generate data out of the box. But if teams are still using Schema, for example, or mm-hmm. I don't know, if there's someone has their own homebrewed you know, uh, business data generation tool that they're just, you know, waiting to unleash on the community, uh, closure community, they could have that integrate with spec monster as well. Right. Um, okay. so it's, yeah, it's like, it's not even uses spec out of the box because spec is an awesome tool, right. And people should be using spec in my opinion, but you don't have to use spec, but I would say the other, the other facet of your question of like, what was it like to develop a library that leverages spec is that we, I, it was interesting to uh, become more familiar with spec in the process of writing this because I wanted the library itself to be well specced. One of the things I wanted to do was to provide useful error messages for people um, when you look at this library, I, I put it in the readme that like it'll probably take you, you know, at least an hour or two to, to start to get comfortable with this because there's just I, there's just a lot of new stuff there. And um, when you're writing these queries, for example, the queries have a syntax. Uh, I don't know if I call it a domain specific language, but you know, it's, it, just because I, you know, people like to use that term, and I don't know. Anyway, that's. <laughs> But, you know, this thing has a syntax, right? And if you write incorrect queries, I think that you should be told and that you've written something incorrect and given useful information, as much useful information as possible for you to be able to correct whatever you mistake you may have made in writing this query. And so I thought that spec would be perfect for that, right? And, you know, it has been really useful uh, to, you know, to define uh, to use it to de- define the shape of the query, um, not just the query, but the schema as well. The schema has certain constraints. You know, certain keys have to be there. Um, there are some things that like aren't allowed or that wouldn't make any sense. You know, so it's it's nice to have spec there to you know, provide those guardrails and uh, provide what I, what I I think is pretty useful information about like when you may have you know thrown your bowling ball like outside of those the, the bumpers. You know. Um, so, so it's been really useful in that regard, but so one thing, the one thing that was interesting though, and that was like surprisingly delightful, uh, that I found was uh, in the process of doing this, I got more uh, comfortable with spec and I ended up using spec conform. And so what I use that for is to be able to do kind of dispatch on the query that the user has provided. So, um, there's this one place where in, in the query, you can provide either a number or a keyword. And if you give it a number, then you say, like, I want to create, you know, five likes, for example, right? Um, so like then you would use the number five there. But like, let's say you want to create a specific like and you want to give it a specific name, then you would use a keyword there. And the way that I was doing the dispatch on that previously was I was just checking to say, like, was this a, you know, is this a number or is it a keyword? Which is relying on the uh, kind of implicit information, right? Uh, if it's a number, then it's this type of query. And if it's a keyword, then it's a different kind of query. 
But what conform allows you to do is you, like you you write different specs for these uh, for these different alternatives. You know, there's the the number alternative, and then there's the keyword alternative, and then in the code you can dispatch on a more descriptive value um, rather than just a type. So it's I think it makes the code easier to read. Um, I wish I had the code up in front of me, and I, I could actually you know give the examples of like what these descriptive values are. But I don't know. It's on. No, I, th- I think I think that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's nice. So, so one thing um, I, I've just got the code actually up in front of me at the moment, and one thing I wanted to re- remark on when I was looking at this was how little code there is for how much it's doing. There's about six hundred, seven hundred lines of kind of code in the in the you know the main source paths, or at least significant lines of code. Um, but it's doing you know, like if you you know what you're describing. You, you could easily imagine a system with you know several times more uh, lines of code to achieve the same goals. Yeah, I like to think that um, a lesser programmer would have programmed this in maybe you know five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand <laughs> lines of code. You know, when I'm having a rough day, that number goes up significantly more. I had a couple of zeros on there. <laughs> Pat myself on the back a little bit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh no i mean that's i appreciate that and like but uh, i also think it's yes it's definitely a testament to i mean i you know personally honestly i feel very proud of this library and i feel like it's you know so i wrote yeah i wrote that book closure for the brave and true and while i was writing it i was learning closure you know and so it's been a few years now and i feel like over the last few years i've gotten to to work with some really great talented people who know closure um, really well and you know been able to look at a lot of really great code like reframe I, I think that you have a a hand in reframe if I'm yeah. not mistaken yeah. yeah that's right yeah reframe um, James Reeves uh, Reeves's work uh, Reef Jester you know and yeah. so like I feel like anyway I'm going on here but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like um, I, I really tried to write something that was uh, you know, uh, informed by the, the closure spirit. You know, I was channeling, I was channeling my inner Rich Hickey. I was trying to, <laughs> trying to, you know. What, one thing I'll say, so like at, at Reify, um, we would measure our productivity in this unit uh, called Micro Nolans. Uh, <laughs> so because David Nolan is a superhumanly productive individual. Of course. Right. Yeah. And so if you're able to achieve even a micro Nolan of productivity, uh, you know. Right. Yes. You're doing pretty uh, well. Right. Right. So uh, perhaps there's uh, some other similar unit of, you know, um, that measures the degree to which your code embodies the, the closure spirit, um, which, you know, I think maybe I've gotten, you know, at least a couple of those in there. But uh, <laughs> I don't. I'm not sure what I'm talking about at this point, except to say that, like, uh, it's, I tried really hard. I tried really hard. Is, um, and the other thing I want to mention, too, is, like, you said, like, for what it does, I, um, some of the other things that this library does, which, I, you know, I didn't mention because I was trying to give an overview or a summary of it, is it, it, it handles a lot of edge cases also about generating this data. So, like, let's say you have some uniqueness constraints, like where an entity type has two different references and like, let's say like a, 
Oh, for likes, for example, you can't like the same thing twice. So you can't have the same post and the same user for a like. That's a that's a uniqueness constraint, right? So Specmon said, well, handle that. You can specify like there is a uniqueness constraint here and resolve that by you know, generating unique posts, for example. Like if you're saying like I want to create, you know, 10 different likes, then it will create 10 different posts as well, so that you ah. satisfy that uniqueness constraint. Right. It also does uh, polymorphic references because in Datomic you have a just a generic reference type um, as opposed to like relational databases, right? Mm-hmm. So um, you might want to like either a post or a topic, and this will like the spec monster allows you to specify in the query, I want to create a like, and I want this like to actually reference a topic, or I want this other like to reference a post. And these different features combine where if you want to say like, I want to create 10 different likes, you know, and I want them, you know, to reference a topic, then they will all reference a topic. So we try to make it like intuitive in that way of like, we have these separate features, you know, for handling these different constraints. And when you write the query, it should work the way that you expect it to. So... It's just, I, I think that the other, the other piece of that, though, is that, you know, moving to this graph representation internally, just like doing the internals of even building this MTB made it a lot easier. And so like that uses Loom and Loom is a very well done library that's made it a lot easier to create SpecMonster. And so I don't know her real name, but her GitHub name is Isolu. And so hats off to her for creating such an excellent library. Yeah, it's it's a really cool library. Um, yeah, I want to mention too. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep. I just want to give credit where credit is due. Like my my former colleagues at at Reify, Chris O'Donnell and Matt Anderson, uh, also contributed. Uh, Chris really helped me simplify the interface. Like initially, um, the query for each query term, you could have like a vector of like uh, initially like three or four different. Um, arguments and then like an arbitrary number of arguments tacked onto it. And then Chris was like, he was in a gentle way, basically like, why are we doing this? That made me also wonder like, why are we doing this? This is kind of a baroque way, I think, to to find a query. Like, why not just use a map? So I, I don't know. I feel like Chris really also helped to make it a lot more elegant. But then by using a map to represent each query term, it just makes it a lot easier to then combine the different things that uh, constraints that you want to define in the query that I was mentioning before, like, um, you know, uniqueness constraints or like the polymorphic reference references and things like that, you know, instead of having to like have a slot for each one of those possibilities, um, you just use a map and that's something that's like really basic. Uh, but you know, it was really grateful. I was really grateful that Chris, you know, set me straight <laughs> with that. Nice. Yeah. I, I would so, say so that he increased. Sorry, I would say that he increased our productivity on the library by at least like four or five microvolts with that <laughs> with that change. Yeah, actually, when I was looking at the those queries, I was looking at how how little there was there, and I was sort of trying to fill in the blanks in my head, like how do we get from this like five to this whole um, you know graph representation with this rich rich domain model and yeah it's, it seems really really powerful so to what extent that you can talk about it uh, how does rarefy health use spec right so while i was there 
Um, we use spec pretty much everywhere. The front end, the back end, the interactions between the two. We use spec to, to verify the states of uh, the kind of you know, global state atom in the front end. We, we had a separate library to store the specs since we were using, you know, we, we had the same, same domain entities being transferred between the front end and the back end, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we, yeah, we had a separate library to, to store those. I think one of the Stu's, I don't remember if it was Stuart Holloway or um, the other Sierra. Stuart, Stuart, yeah, Stuart Sierra. Yeah. You know, had a post recently, you know, on spec best practices. And they mentioned that uh, having separate namespaces for your specs. And that was something that we had adopted. Turned out to be pretty useful. Um, there was, it was definitely pretty useful during development to, to verify like, you know, that we were doing what we thought that we were doing. Um, in some cases, so since I'm not working there, I will probably avoid discussing any of the times that we were using spec that didn't work out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) like, like, but I will, I will say, I will say, I'll give the caveat there that anytime it didn't work out, it was probably my fault. So just to say, like, I just like, I'm, you know, don't definitely don't want to, uh, you know, I love my former colleagues, you know, and they did a great job is what I'm trying to say. Sure. Yeah. Um, great. And how else did we, we use spec? Gosh, uh, we ended up using, writing a macro uh, that would, I think I've, I've seen this elsewhere too, but it would write specs that would validate that you are only, that you only have the keys that have been specified in the spec. Yes, right? of course. Yeah. Um, and that, that turned out to be, you know, it had like, it had its pros and cons and the way that the macro was written, um, the con there was that you couldn't then use specs merge feature function, Ah. right? Because it's like, if you're saying like validate that only these keys exist and then you try to like merge something onto it, but then that validation is still in there in a way that's inaccessible. And like, then you would say like, well, you have this question of like, if, even if I could use some kind of introspection to pull out this function, which provides a validation, you can't really like then peer into the function to say like, which keys is it validating? And if I'm doing a merge, like what, what does that really mean? You know, like semantically. Right. So that turned out to not be, to be kind of a hindrance in some cases. I would say another thing that we ran into that was interesting was like we kind of learned over time that it was useful to create um, different specs for different contexts, even for the same entity type. So you have a reading yeah. context, creating and updating. Uh, we started out with just like here's your you know patient spec, for example, right? But you know we need to do different things in different contexts, and you know I think that they had started to de- develop some tooling around that, but I don't, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I, I had the same experience. Uh, maybe a year or two ago, contracted with Cognitect at day eight, and we had Paul DeGrandis mm. working with us. And that was one of the key kind of spec spec lessons that he taught us was to to separate. It, you know that that often you can share the same attributes between, say, the client and the server or different places, but the aggregate or you know the 
the map that contains them all together may be different between the client and server so to, to not kind of confuse those two two levels of of spec speaking things and that's paid off really well for us yeah definitely definitely cool it's good to get like validation that the you know olympians of closure also <laughs> take, take, take this approach <laughs> yeah i'd agree with that characterization uh, <laughs> are you using any other tooling around spec uh so one thing i do remember is that they were using xbound uh, which is very nice very nice tool mm, yeah i agree yeah it's a great tool for improving the error messages that spec gives you is there anything else in this kind of before we move move past spec and spec monster? Is there anything else in there that you wanted to mention or cover? Uh, yeah, so I did. I did want to mention even uh, just today. I was chatting with with Chris at, at Reify, and he had mentioned that he was using Spec Monster to just generate um, a ton of data to do some performance testing. Um, uh. Which is, you know, I, I, I bill it as like unit testing, but, you know, it was cool to be like, oh, nice. Like you can, you know, get an arbitrary, easily get an arbitrary amount of consistent data that you can dump into your database in order to do some kind of performance testing. Um, so I do remember like at the, at the time, like we had, like, let's say, you know, you, know, you have like a, a table view or something like that that has like thousands of records, Right. It would be very easy with SpecMaster to say, like, give me a thousand of these things, and it will generate everything that you like, everything else that you might need in order to support that those thousand records, and then you can just like try to load it in your browser and like maybe do profiling or whatever on that. So that's cool to hear. Yeah, that seems seems really useful. And I've I've kind of hit these same fixture problems over and over again in my career, and when I'm I've I've got some fixtures in depth which are sort of fairly uh, static uh, in fact yeah. they are they are lit- literally static they are defined in a def and mm-hmm. uh, they sort of go through and define i've sort of you know laboriously worked out the the relationships between them and all of those things so being able to throw that code away and uh, get something more dynamic would be would be really nice and yeah give me a lot of leverage there so cool uh, look to investigating this further yeah yeah one other thing i want to mention really quickly too so i'm hoping to do a talk on this for the con that's coming up. And, you know, I, I don't want to give it away too much, but my idea for this is to create what I'm calling like um, a social media nicotine patch. But, uh, <laughs> but the idea is to use SpecMonster to, you know, dynamically generate domain data, like in, in interacting with a website. In this case, it would be like somewhat randomly that, because, you know, that's what, social media does, it gives you these random hits of, you know, dopamine, whatever, like that's part of the addictive draw of it. But to be able to, to go beyond fixtures and to provide random data, like random updates of like, you know, some number has increased. So feel good about yourself. It's kind of, you know, SpecMonster would allow you to do that. Whereas like if you have static, you know, just like static fixtures, then that wouldn't be possible. Sure. I'm hoping by mentioning my desire to be giving a talk at the closure conch will tip the scales in my favor. Um, <laughs> I submitted a talk. I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but it was about deploying closure apps. Like I'd written these, these Ansible scripts to make it really easy and seamless to deploy mm-hmm. a basic closure application. 
Well, the, the title of the talk was Watch Some Guy Deploy a Closure Application. And I don't know, maybe that's just, maybe Alex didn't think that that was very appealing or what, but, or maybe he thought, maybe he thought it was the opposite. Maybe he thought that that was just too risque, you know, something. Yeah, yeah, it does sound like it could could go in a lot of places, so. Yeah, so anyway, <laughs> sorry, I hope that this will, <laughs> I hope that with your your pool, you know, with this podcast, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all right, well, fingers crossed. Yeah. So another notable thing about SpecMonster is that it has a really great readme with documentation in it and a tutorial that sort of walks you through how it all works. And that's, you know, pretty notable in, in the Clojure community, you know, to, to have documentation of this quality. You know, not everything is as well documented as this. And, you know, the other kind of large piece of documentation you've written is uh, Brave Clojure, uh, the closure for the brave and true. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about kind of how you think about writing documentation, uh, your process, what goes into it, anything in that sort of area? So definitely closure for the brave and true. Um, it's definitely like it's its own process there. And that's you know, some of my goals there. Like I had a personal goal of wanting to have something that was educational and technical, but that was also for me, a creative expression. And at the time, like where I was, I just, for whatever reason, I just really, f I thought it would be fun to try to write something that would be uh, just really funny for people, but at the same time, um, very clear in the technical explanations. And I also kind of felt like at the time, uh, I was learning closure and I'd had difficulty in different ways learning closure. And so I was trying to write from the perspective of someone who didn't know Java, for example, and was also somewhat, had a lot of these difficulties still fresh in my mind and actually encountered a lot of them along the way. So I tried to write in such a way that these ideas, which were unfamiliar for me and for a lot of people, functional programming, immutability would be accessible. Um, so, you know, I, I had these like personal goals of, uh, you know, creative expression. I had a bunch of jokes that had accumulated over time. Um, just like these ideas of like the cuddle zombie who just wants to hug you but it's dead and gross and you know decaying <laughs> you know right and but so i just wanted to have like i thought it'd be awesome to be able to actually put those out there in some way um and you know i really shoehorned those those jokes into the um into like the the, the technical concepts of like i think that the cuddle zombie had something to do with um state management you know Anyway, the hunger level, I think, increased over time. That was part of how the, the Call Zombie worked in there. Uh, I'm kind of getting off track there, though. But <laughs> So uh, in, in the process, though, it's, you know, the thing that I had really foremost uh, in my mind was, will it be possible for a beginner to read this and understand it? You know, and I, I think that everyone who writes, like, they want a beginner. They want someone who's new to this topic, whatever it is that they're writing about, to understand it. You know, but it can be very difficult. Like there's that phrase, you can't unring a bell. Like once you understand something, something changes in your mind. And the, all of these assumptions that you make in thinking about and talking about something, they, they just aren't there for, for other people. And it can be very difficult to like kind of get that mindset back again. You know, if I, if I explain something, you know, what do I actually have to address? Basically, your explanation can have a lot of gaps in it. 
that if you have too many gaps in it, it's like someone's trying to follow along your explanation and they keep falling into these gaps and it is painful for them. Eventually they're going to stop, you know, following your explanation. Right. So it's the, the idea is just to, to try to figure out like, what are these gaps and to fill those gaps in. Right. So um, that's what I try to do with the spec monster documentation, you know, with, like uh, with the spec monster documentation, I didn't, I didn't care so much about like, you know, trying to make it entertaining. I did, I did try to do it a little bit because I think that that's actually useful from a pedagogical standpoint uh, to keep people engaged. Right. But also from a, you know, personal time management standpoint, it's like, it's, it's difficult to like weave together some, some like long running joke, you know, into a technical, technical documentation. And I, I, you know, I just, I don't, I just don't really have time for that now, uh, unfortunately, but yeah, definitely. So like you said, there's, there's a ton of documentation there. Like there will be more, there's more to come. Um, but I tried to cover like the basics of how to use it. And for me, you know, in, in writing this, I feel like I'm really happy with how it's turned out. I think that it's useful uh, for people or I think it could be very useful for people. And part of my thinking was like, you know, I want, I actually want this to be used. I want this to, to catch on, right? Because I think that it will help people and, you know, make their lives a bit easier as developers. But, you know, I can't, I can't expect people to put in that effort, right? Like, I, you know, people are, are busy, right? And I can't people, expect people to put in that effort to just kind of, you know, do the work of inferring, you know, what things mean and like what my mindset was, you know? Um, Spec Monster, you know, I try to be deliberate and consistent, like both in the code, but also in the documentation of trying to come up with concepts and, and give names to these concepts so that, you know, people have a, a better way of, of thinking about how to use this. Because I do think, you know, SpecMonster does, does things in, you know, I haven't seen tools like in the same domain, like the, you know, I've seen FactoryBot, for example, tools that, that do this kind of fixture generation approach the problem in quite the same way. So through this process, I tried to come up with hopefully useful names like entDB, visiting function, things like that, but then also to take the time to really explain all of these things and, and how they fit together. Um, because it's like, I feel like there's a lot there, you know, to, there's a lot there to learn, right? And I want the project to be a success. And if there's no way that it can be a success and there's no way that people are really going to use it if I don't actually respect people's time and like respect what it's like, you know, to be a learner, you know, I guess another way of thinking about it is that going through shitty documentation or having to deal with a lack of documentation, it's very painful, you know? And like, let's say this library did get successful and people started using it. And, you know, you have maybe like new closure developers um, or just like new people on a team that now have to use this tool, but then there's like very lousy documentation for how to use it. Um, you know, like the pain inflicted by success um, would just, would only grow, right? And I think that that would really suck. So I don't know. I, I think that that's basically in writing the documentation for it, you know, I was just, I kept I, there are some parts that I revised multiple times and this was the same for the book of like, you know, I'd write something and it would help me get, it helped me at least 
lay out the concepts that I wanted to explain. But then I'd go back and I realized that the, my explanation of the concepts was really subpar. So I'd have to, you know, go back and like reorder things a little bit. Like when I was writing the book, for example, there, there are sometimes when I'd have to change, uh, basically like flip the order of everything in a chapter, you know, but it's all in service kind of, you know, guiding someone along this path of like, you know, going from point A to point B to point C to point D, instead of just saying like, hey, I'm just going to, you know, try to push you from point A to point F, you know, and hope you don't fall along the way. We've all encountered this, like you waste so much time, you know, trying to like, maybe infer something from the code, or you go down like these rabbit holes of like, you think something means uh, X, but it actually means Y. And so... Anyway, that's the overall, overall, like my approach and trying to explain things to people as much as possible, not focus on impressing them with like, here's this cool thing that I wrote, right? But instead trying to respect them as a learner and help them learn as efficiently as possible and hopefully enjoyably too. So is there anything else uh, you'd like to mention? Oh, right. So I do want to mention that Reify is hiring um, I have a little job board, jobs.braveclosure.com, but they have two job postings up there. My friend Josh uh, is hiring a data engineer, which is pretty exciting. Josh is a very smart guy and it's really fun to work with. And I know that, I forget what the other position is. I think it might be front-end developer. But anyway, Reify is also hiring for another position. Oh, anything else I want to mention? So one of the projects I've been working on in my spare time lately has been to rebuild gratefulplace.com. And that in the process of rebuilding it, I've been working on. Uh, so I was, I was telling you about this uh, a little bit earlier. And, you know, I confess to you that I am only human. I have my flaws and I have succumbed to one of them, which is that I've started writing my own framework. It's called Sweet Tooth. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, um, it's not ready for anyone to, to use. Well, okay. It's usable. I would say it's usable. I use it. But it's not ready for collaboration by any means. If you were to put up a PR or ask about it or anything, I would probably just ignore it because I don't, um, I, I don't have enough time myself even to, to work on it like right now. It's on and off, mostly off, but the idea with the Sweet Tooth framework is to handle a lot of, like on the front end, handle a lot of common use cases of like, um, it's, it's, it's a layer on top of Reframe. So when you're using Reframe, you have a lot, you do these things like you want to handle like pagination, for example, or forms. And it handles those cases of like, how do I structure a form? Like, where do I save the data? Like, how do I handle the whole Reframe cycle for, for editing a form? Um, what if I want to reset my form? What do I do after I submit my form? What do I do with the response, you know, that comes back? How do I integrate that back into the, you know, the entity, uh, update my entities there, uh, for example. In the process of writing this, it's actually been pretty rewarding. I've been thinking a lot about, like, what makes a good framework? Going back and, like, you know, rereading some of uh, my, my old, like, operating systems books, you know, there's this one book, The Design of the Unix Operating System. It, like, you know, basically an operating system, you can think of it as a framework in a way in that you have like all these different tools built on top of it that have to be able to interact with each other 
in a way that's extensible. So I feel like some of this, like those ideas um, are applicable to software or to libraries, frameworks that are, are libraries, right? Mm. Um, so anyway, that's that's been pretty fun, but and I'm hoping to spend a significant amount of time on that uh, over the next couple months and relaunch gratefulplace.com. Um, I've been really very motivated to do that. Uh, just the website itself, I feel like it's it was very rewarding when it was uh, actually when it was being used more frequently, it's kind of died down a bit. And so I'm hoping to kind of revitalize that. I think that that's, that's it. Yeah. I think that that's it. That's what's going on for me. Um, and also, uh, you know, Alex, other closure Olympians, if you're listening, I would love to love to get on stage in Durham, my hometown <laughs> and talk about spec monster. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'll, send, I'll send him a link to the show um, <laughs> right. great cool alright well thanks very much for, for talking with me uh, taking time out of your day um, yeah it was really interesting no thanks for having me this was uh, you know it was, it's, I very much appreciate being able to kind of share what, what Spec Monster is I, I do think that it'd be valuable for a lot of people like I said it's, it's been difficult to kind of figure out like how do I how do I share how do I describe this how do I share this with people you know but it's um it's a problem that like pretty much like nearly every developer has at some point. And so I'm hoping that it will be useful for people. And so I, I very much appreciate your giving me the chance to talk about it. So thank you. No problem. All right. Well, have a great day. Great. You too. Thanks. <laughs>